Hi, I'm Elena. I'm a senior. I'm a C group leader. But you'll hear more about that later. So I'm reading Romans 8, 1 today. Very short. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nice and short. Great. Super excited to hear what Rudy has to say. But first, I'm going to pray, obviously, because we're at church. <laughs> God, I just want to thank you for getting us all here safely today. And I would just pray that you would let us take a break from the hustle and bustle of our new classes and kind of getting back into the rhythm of being in school and just help us to open our hearts and listen to what you have to say to us tonight. And yeah, amen. Y'all give it up for Elena. That was great. Thank you so much. Yo, I love that. Man, my name is Rudy Hartman. I'm also on staff here with Salt Company. If you got a Bible, you can head over to Romans chapter 8 if you know where that is. Um, if you have one of these blue guys, it's on page 550, so that'll help you out a little bit. Uh, but I just want to say, I'm just super grateful that you're here, right? It's Thursday night, you could be anywhere, and you're here at Salt Company. And I want to honor that and thank you so much for being here. Really like Katie said, um, I love this midweek gathering, but I think that the connection groups that we have are like the lifeblood of what we do here at Salt Company. And when she said we have some amazing connection group leaders, no one reacted. So can I just like, if you're in a connection group and you like your C group leader, can I say, we got some amazing connection group leaders, right? Like y'all give it up for them. That's incredible. I love our C group leaders. Hey, so you're going to have a chance to get into one of those connection groups tonight. You're going to have a chance to get into one of those tonight. We'll have a QR code for you to scan and sign up for one of those groups. Even if you've signed up for a group before or were in a group last semester, we still want you to do that. It'll be right in the back. That's this week. Next week, I just want to let you know what's coming. Next week, you might have come in and seen we got this huge rock wall. Why is that there? It's for you. I'm kidding. But it is also, actually it is. We bought this building. It was there. Sick. So we're going to use it. We got a rock wall. We have a trampoline, like, park essentially over here. And we love opening it up to our community around here and to bless the local schools around here and neighborhoods around here. But we also like to hook it up here at Salt Company, too. So we're going to have an open gym after Salt Company next week. So come through. Bring somebody with you. We're going to go wild out there. But but we also have Miranda's brownies coming through. It's just a treat to everybody coming through. So come through next week. Uh, we'd want to hook that up for you. Open gym, Miranda's brownies, the whole nine. All right, so this week in particular, we're starting a collection of talks called Gospel Truth. Um, it's very creative. We're going to look at six things over the next six weeks that are true because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel truths. We are like wildly cutting edge. It's amazing. Um, Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be leaning in. And I love it because if you've been committed to following Jesus for a long time or you're here and you're just curious, Romans chapter 8 is an incredible place to start. I love this quote. Um, I can't remember who said it, but, but they said that Romans 8 is like the inner sanctuary of the cathedral of the Christian faith. And I'm really not sure what that means, but don't it sound good? Like, that just sounds like a good thing. So we're going to be doing that. So if you're committed, curious, anywhere in between, this is for you. And the first gospel truth that we're going to deal with, really structured tonight around, it, it, it is this. First of six in our series is straight from the text, and it's this. I am not condemned. Straight from the text, 
I am not condemned. If you're a title person and you take notes, I am not condemned. If it's in your notes app on your phone, I am not condemned. That's where we're hanging out. That's where we're focusing in on this evening. We're going to deal with two questions. We're going to ask them, answer them, pray, sing, and jump in connection groups. That's what we're doing tonight. The two questions are this. Um, why is there any condemnation to be talking about in the first place? Like, why are we talking about that at all? And two, how is it that those who are in Christ are not condemned? Why is there any condemnation in the first place? And how is it that those who are in Christ are not condemned? We believe that if the word doesn't do the work, then the work won't get done. And I know Elena just prayed, but I'm going to pray as well, even just for myself as we jump into this text. So, Father, I ask that you would help me. Um, I come up here uh, very needy, um, dependent. Um, I don't have much to bring other than uh, the text. So I ask that your word would be on the forefront of our time and of our minds. That this reality, that therefore there are, is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus would, would just be such a loud bell in our minds and in our hearts that it would be something that we cannot escape or run away from and that it would bring great joy, that it would be goodness, that we would see you, Jesus, so clearly. So may the words that I speak in the very meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. You're my rock and you're my redeemer. I need you. We need you. Uh, would you show up? And please, let the, baskers, let the Badgers continue to excel at basketball in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So why condemnation? Someone just clapped. That's like the closest we got to. Y'all can talk back to me and clap. That, that was great. Okay. Um, <laughs> why condemnation? Let's go there. This word can seem like a street preachery kind of word. I don't know. I haven't been here long enough to know if anybody like rolls up on State Street with like a loudspeaker and just be yelling at you guys. Like I don't know if that happens. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But condemnation seems like a word that you could like kind of slide into describing what that person would do. The street preacher, like religious zealot person that's just rocking down the road. And, and when we hear the word condemnation, it feels so easy to associate that immediately as like a religious word. But I just want to deal with this very briefly as we're moving into this text. That condemnation is not primarily a religious word. It is primarily a judicial word. It is a word of the judiciary. It is a justice word. Condemnation means sentence to punishment. At its root, it is a judicial word representing this reality of justice. So let me illustrate that with my own life. I'm going to lay myself out here a little bit for you. Some of y'all, um, this is maybe your first time back in church in a while. And for that reason, uh, you are expecting the person that's up here to kind of have it all together and tell like stories of victory that seem impossible to accomplish and frankly hyperbolic. And we don't do that here because we really value authenticity here at Doxa. We think that God wants to transform who you really are and not who you pretend to be. So I'll go first. Um, I was arrested when I was a senior in high school. <laughs> uh, all that to get to there, right? I caught a misdemeanor from the state of Florida for destruction of property. Uh, to quote my best friend, Javi Pasalacqua, what he said when he found out, whoops. Um, like, like, like that kind of, that was a pretty serious thing. Like I caught a misdemeanor from the state of Florida. Here's how it happened. I did something. Evidence was presented. It was considered and weighed. I was found guilty and I was condemned. I was sentenced to a punishment. Why? Because it was just. 
like that makes sense. Like I'm a decade removed from that now, more than that. I'm a little more than a decade removed from that. And, and I can look back and say, that was just, it, it was just. Now, frankly, there's been a lot of conversation about justice and injustice over the last several years, which I think is important and good. I've been thrilled about it, not because it's happening, but because the Bible actually has a lot to say about justice. But me receiving my punishment for what I did was just. There, I don't think that there's anybody, if we were to like have an honest conversation, I don't think that there's anybody that would beef over the word like condemnation. Like, I don't think anybody would say there shouldn't be condemnation because to say that there shouldn't be condemnation is to say that there shouldn't be justice. It's to say that there should not be a sentence of penalty for things that are wrong. And everybody in this room would agree that there are just some things that are like unobjectively, universally, ethically, and morally wrong. And that the perpetration of these things deserve justice to be served. Here's a few that I think we really can all agree on. When it comes to human trafficking in the sex slave industry, there is no room in that to make an argument for moral or ethical appropriateness or justness. That is unethical. It is wrong. When it comes to murder, wrong. When it comes to racism, wrong. Like they are objectively evil. They deserve justice. And we might be like nodding along kind of in like total like agreement, but also kind of wondering in the back of our head, Rudy, this is a great understanding of the etymology of the word condemnation, but are we going to talk about the verse that you just said we're going to talk about? And the answer is actually like, yes. <laughs> what does Jesus have to do with justice? Actually a lot. Great question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> if you were here last semester, we looked at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. The Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, the followers' prayer uh, from Matthew chapter 6 from uh, Luke chapter 11. It's this prayer that Jesus taught his followers how to pray. And in the middle of this prayer, Roger brought a great, strong word. I mean, worth going back to YouTube or on our, on our uh, website and checking it out on uh, let your kingdom come. Jesus teaches this in the middle of the prayer. God, let your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Whether you're familiar with the context of that or not, you've probably heard something like that before. Let me pull it into like your neighborhood. God, let your will be done and your kingdom come in Madison as it is in heaven, at UW as it is in heaven, in Middleton as it is in, in, in heaven, in Stoughton as it is in heaven. God, let your will be done here where I am as it is in heaven. But it brings up this idea of this kingdom. Jesus talked about the kingdom a lot. In fact, the first words recorded in the gospel, according to Mark, a first century biographical account of the words, works, and ways of Jesus. These are the first words that Jesus says. He says, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What is this good news? The first words Jesus is recorded as saying in Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this kingdom is clearly important, but what is it? I'm going to riff off one of my favorite living theologians. His name's Patrick Schreiner, and he defines the kingdom like this. He says, the kingdom of God is the presence of God with the people of God in a particular place. 
presence, people, and place. It's alliterated, so it's easy to remember. That's amazing. What a gift, Patrick. Thank you. Um, right? Like, like we get to lean into understanding what the kingdom of God is like. And if you flip to the end of the Bible, you see that this is actually how everything ends. God's presence, perfectly known by his people in a place called the new heavens and the new earth. And in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 6, we actually see a picture of what this will look like. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. God's dwelling, his presence with humanity, his people, and he will live with them where? In a place. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, acknowledging the sadness that they experience. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. The things worth condemnation have passed away. The sin of the past has passed away. All that was old has passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. We get a picture of this kingdom, God's presence among his people in a particular place. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is coming and teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done in earth, on Madison, at UW, as it is in heaven, that's the picture that he's saying this coming here. Heaven coming to earth, that coming here, not in full, but in part. What could that look like? What could that mean? It means that heaven coming is coming to earth to push out every expression of hell on earth. I'll say that again. Heaven is coming to earth to push out every expression of hell on earth. Heaven, God's presence through his people in a place to push out every expression of hell on earth. And hell on earth looks like the things that are worthy of condemnation. Hell on earth looks like human trafficking and sex slavery. Hell on earth uh, looks like murder. Hell on earth looks like racism. When Jesus says the kingdom has come, he is saying that he has come to mark the inauguration, the beginning, the coming of his kingdom and a way for the people who are experiencing hell on earth and separation from God to actually know what it means to be a part of the way and the life of that kingdom before they experience it in full. This means that the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, there is no room for things that are worthy of condemnation. And that's actually really good news. God's design is one in which all people hear the good news of great joy, which is that Jesus Christ has come to save, rescue, redeem, and restore that which was broken and lost. And I don't know anybody who'd complain about that. I don't know anybody who would, wouldn't say that these things should be condemned. That it is good news that God wants these things to go away. He wants to make all things new. That these things that are worth condemnation in our lives have no place in the life and practice of Christians because they have no place in the life and practice of the kingdom of God. But that's not all that it means. You see, Jesus is dealing with a broader swath than this. He doesn't just want to eradicate symptoms. He wants to eradicate roots. He doesn't just want to heal symptoms. He wants to heal roots. It's like if you went to the doctor with a broken leg and he put you in a cast, that would make sense. Doctor, broken leg, cast. That feels like a pretty easy equation, right? We're good. Um, And then you came back like a week later and your leg was broken again. And your doc's like, 
yo, dude, like, what, like, why, like, what, what, why, what, do you live at the firehouse? I'm kidding. Um, like, like, what, like, why, like, why? And you're like, ah, man, I just, I keep hitting it with a hammer, you know, <laughs> like, it's just, I just keep hitting it with that hammer, you know, it's oh, just me and the hammer, oh, bummer. Um, and the doctor's like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah, I keep hitting it with a hammer. Well, the doctor is going to put your leg in a cast again. This might not happen, but stick with me. Like, the doctor is going to put your leg in a cast again. He should do that. But he needs to write you a prescription for no more hammers, right? Because the issue is not that your leg's broken. The issue is that you keep hitting yourself in the leg with the hammer. Fix the symptom all you want. But if you don't get rid of the hammer, the root, the symptom will just keep coming back in different and diverse ways. So what lives at the root of each of these things? Just to pick on a couple. What lives at the root of human trafficking and sex slavery? Doesn't mean that this will lead to it, but what lives at the root of that is, is, is our lust. Lust drives that trade. What lives at the root of murder? Jesus said it's anger. What lives at the root of racism? It, it's pride. It's looking down on others as if someone else who's made in the equivalent image of God as you are is somehow worth less than you are. Pride. Not only can these symptoms not coexist in the kingdom of God, the roots can't either. And that presents a problem. There's no need for hands, but anybody in here never lusted? Been angry? Been prideful? Again, y'all, I'll go first. I have all three of these things, absolutely have all three of them. And not only are these not compatible with the kingdom of God, they are anti-kingdom. Another word for practices that are anti-kingdom is sin. Jesus calls each of these sin. Ignatius of Loyola, a Spanish theologian from the 1600s, has what I think is one of the most helpful definitions of sin. Translated, it's this. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. You could hang out just in that quote for a long time. Put another way, sin is believing that I know better than God what is best for me. Sin gives, uh, sorry, God gives us a way of life that can be summed up in the word flourishing. Jesus calls it the blessed life in Matthew chapter 5. Now, this isn't a secular blessing, not about content or, or possessions, but character and passions. And we call this the way of Jesus, the way to practice a, a life in preparation for the life that is to come. That instead of lust, the way of Jesus says, hey, let's honor the dignity that is innate to others and not objectify it in others. Instead of anger that leads to sin, let's move towards making peace, not trying to keep a false peace, but actually doing the hard work of reconciliatory making peace, peacemaking. Instead of pride that causes us to look down on others around us, we move with humility because Jesus came humbly, so we live humbly. God gives us this good way. That is a delightful way. Imagine a world marked by like honor, peacemaking, and humility. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. And that's the way of Jesus. That's the way that he presents this good way, this better way. And yet, guys, let's just be honest in this place. Like, drop the facade. We, like, we don't have to do like the, the Christianese, let's perform for each other thing. Like, we still choose lust and anger and pride and a litany of other things that don't just deviate from the way that he sets before us, but deny it. 
It's like we can't shake it. It's like it's in our blood. It's, it, it's like really when sin entered in through Adam and Eve that it really has broken the peace of the world in a way that we experience that brokenness still today. It really is like when Paul says in the chapter just before this, I keep doing the things I don't wanna do and the things that I don't wanna do, I keep doing. Who will rescue me from this wretched way? It's like he meant it when he said, this is like in our, this is baked in. I don't know how to shake it. This sin creates a separation between us and God as we choose that which is opposite and antithetical to him. So let's just do a thought experiment for just a moment, Salt Company. Imagine for a moment that you are God. Ooh. Um, Imagine for a moment that you're God. Like you've created everything, you're, you're over everything, you're sovereign over all things, etc. cetera. You, you've structured the world for their good and for their flourishing. You've laid out a way that will lead to their flourishing in community as a part of your present and coming kingdom. And then that people over and over and over again, they, they spit in your face and they deny your way and they do the opposite for years. And when you move towards them, they move away and it happens for months and then for years and then for generations and then for millennia. What would you do? Like if you were God, like what would you do? Again, be honest with me. Like I, I dare say that after a while, your patience would run thin. You've been back for a week and your roommate's already bothering you. I think <laughs> that like the stewardship of God, it would be a bit much. Patience might run thin. You'd want to lay down some justice. You'd look at people and say, this sentence is just. They deserve condemnation for what they have chosen, what they have done, and you would leave it at that. Let them get what they've come to deserve, hell on earth and hell in eternity. This is the condemnation that our sin deserves. Without Christ, this is our posture. This is our position. But here's what God does. He does something immeasurably better than that. Maybe you've seen this verse before. In John 3, 16, it says that God so loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's pretty good. For, for a God who sees people run away from him, sprint away from him to say, I'm actually going to send my son to, to, to make a way for you who would believe in him to have everlasting life. But I wonder if you're as familiar with the verse that comes after. Check out verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I was in China uh, on an overseas trip. Yo, shout out to the overseas team. If you don't know, we're sending 12 students overseas this summer. That's a good thing. Um, I was talking with a friend of mine when I was overseas, Wolf. And while I was sharing the gospel with him, Wolf said, um, so help me, Rudy, because Jesus has come, doesn't that mean that we will now be punished? And I got to look at this man that I'd like shared meals with. We'd hooped. And if you don't know what hooping is, that's basketball. Like we'd hooped. We, we, we talked life, talked family, talked Jesus, and I got to look at him and say, actually, Wolf, it means that because Jesus has come, there's a way for us to be saved. 
he heard that message and thought maybe what you might think, if God has sent a son, he certainly sent him to punish me for what I have done. He certainly sent, me to condemn, sent him to condemn. And the reality is this, God has sent Jesus not so the world might be condemned, but so that it might be saved, so that we might be saved. Maybe you need to know tonight what my friend Wolf needed to hear, that old verse from John three seventeen. That in a move of cosmic upside-downness, Jesus Christ does not come to condemn those who deserve condemnation, but to save us. That our sin deserves the business end of God's justice, and Jesus Christ comes to take our place and receive that sentence of punishment, our condemnation, in our place, and to trade places with us. So our position changes. This is why in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that Jesus is the just and the justifier. He's just because it has to be paid for, but he's the justifier because he's the one who's going to pay it on our behalf. It's why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Paul writes, he, Jesus, became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the very righteousness of God in Christ. Here's how we can answer our second question, Salt Company. How is it that those who are in Christ are not condemned? The answer is because Christ took our condemnation on himself. He became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christian, you are the righteousness of God in Christ, not because of what you have done, but because you are in him, because he has united you to himself by faith. When God looks at those who put their faith in Jesus, he sees them, but he sees Jesus as their representative. So he looks at you, Christian, and he sees Christ. You have a right standing before God. Righteousness and justice actually share a root word in the original language because the two are connected. Jesus Jesus did what was required for us. He worked out justice on our behalf so that we might be made righteous and brought into union with God, dead to sin and alive with Christ. And if you're here and you've ever thought that Christianity is the story of some people being better than others and God liking some more and others less, I count it a deep joy to tell you that that is not Christianity at all. Christianity is the story of people who are separated, dead, and condemned in our sin, being made alive because of the joining, resurrecting, and just work of Jesus Christ. He made a way where there was no way for us to not be condemned and to be saved. Our position has changed because of what Christ has done, and he's done it through a cross and an empty tomb. This is the moment on the cross in, in Matthew 27, that's actually my reading for today in the Bible, where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every other place in that gospel account, Jesus says, Father, except for this one, where he's quoting back from Psalm 22, and he says, my God. And that's because Jesus is experiencing the separation of sin. He is experiencing the condemnation that sin deserves on the cross, the separation sin deserves from God on behalf of sinners who have sinned, so that we who are in Christ might never know that separation. He called him God in that moment, so we could call him Father forever. It's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. And it was in this moment uh, that there's a professor, uh, Praveen Supathy. Uh, he's a professor of genetics at Cornell. And when he was a freshman at Cornell, uh, he tells a story about he grew, how he grew up in a family culture primarily marked by Hinduism. And he began to read about Jesus. Jesus, who was supposed to be the hero of this story in Praveen's mind, comes to this point on the cross where he hangs naked, disfigured, and pathetic. 
but somehow it is this story of the hero dying for the people that captured Praveen's mind and his heart. It was this ultimate inversion of power. The one who had all the power to condemn, the right to condemn, and the means of condemning instead took our place and is condemned for those who would believe in him so that we might be saved. Jesus takes our punishment and gives us his place. He dies for our sin and rises again three days later so that we we might not just be dead to sin, but alive with Christ. He takes our death and he gives us life. So now if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you can say with certainty these four words, I am not condemned. Jesus paid for your sin before you ever could. That condemnation for your sin, Christian, has already happened. Jesus actually did pay it all. So all to him I owe, as the old song says. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Condemnation no longer exists for the Christian. It's not even a potential for you because of the work that Jesus Christ has done. Guys, if you trust in Jesus, you can know that you are not condemned. So what's that actually mean for you? Like, okay, Rudy, pull it, pull it from the text into my life, okay? Three quick ideas. If you're a note taker, they're gonna be on the screen. First, there is an assured hope of heaven. Assurance is the key word here. I have several friends who either grew up practicing Islam uh, or, or still are, and um, they were very good friends of mine in Florida, so we had some very like thorough conversations about what we both believed because we respected each other enough to actually share what we both believed and even at times try to convince one another to stop believing what we believed and believe something else. They were great conversations. Still a Christian, though. Um, uh, essentially... Uh, we, we got into these conversations. It's interesting to hear when they talk about what comes after death because when you drill down into it, there functionally is no assurance. There's this scale uh, and, and where the good has to outweigh the bad. And I had a good enough relationship with some of my friends in Florida that when they said that and asked what I thought about it, my response was simply this. That sounds terrifying. Like that, that sounds terrifying. Unsure until the final moment whether or not you've done enough good to outweigh the bad. Further, what happens to the bad? Does it just magically disappear or vanish? We have this ideology sometimes that good outweighs bad, but when you're on a cruise ship and, and, and a teaspoon of motor oil somehow gets into the fresh water supply, they don't get on the announcement. The captain doesn't get on the line and say, hey guys, uh, we've got a bunch of good water, but some of that water has motor oil in it. They say, hey, this is an emergency and we're docking because we have no more fresh water. He doesn't say there's a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. He says, hey, this is actually all unusable now. Good and bad don't balance out. I, hear me, I hope you, you do a ton of good. Literally, a part of our mission statement as a church is to, uh, is to see the glory of God and the good of Madison. We want you to do the good works that Jesus Christ has set apart for you from before the foundations of the world, Ephesians 2, chapter 10. But I need you to understand that you need someone to take your bad from you. you I needed someone to take my bad from me. And his name is Jesus. He takes our bad on himself and then he gives us our, his good standing before God because even our good wasn't good enough. And, and here's like the beauty of what happens in this moment. Because we are not condemned presently, we will not be condemned eternally. And that's where our condemnation, that's where our, sorry, our assurance that we are not condemned come from. 
because we are not condemned presently, we will not be condemned eternally. There is an assurance of hope because of what Christ has done, which means the Christians, those who are in Christ, there will not be any condemnation for you. Eternity is locked. God, in the colloquial term, has secured the bag on your soul. Like, it's, it's done. Like, he has given an assurance of heaven to you. So that's one thing for you. Second thing is this. There is nothing left to earn or prove. We're going to talk about this a little bit more next week as we continue this series. But because I am not condemned, I have nothing left to earn or prove. I think this is really important in our culture, but it's also really important in the context of Christianity. There is no sentence of punishment that you need to pay off when it relates to your relationship with Jesus Christ. You are not at like in a debtor's guilt where you're trying to like earn what he has already given you or prove that Jesus made a good investment by saving you. That actually is to invite condemnation back into your relationship with him. You say, I'm not condemned. So long as I live in a way that shows that I earned it and shows that he, and proves that he made a good decision. And that those are the things that happen in the back of your head. But there's actually a better way. There's a greater invitation to you to know that you don't need to prove or earn anything because Jesus Christ has already earned it on your behalf and you don't have to prove anything because he already calls you approved if you are in him. It's here that we see the difference between work and worship. Work looks at Jesus and says, I need to earn that from you and I need to prove that you made a good decision. Worship says, you've done all those things and now you just deserve my devotion and my praise and my life because of who you are and because of what you've done. You need to understand that Jesus doesn't invite you into a performance. He invites you into his peace. He invites you into his peace. Jesus says, come to him and he'll give you Rest. There is a freedom of following Jesus without the burden of thinking you have to earn something that he gives freely and that you can't earn. Finally, um, the, the last thing is that this shapes the way that we move towards one another. There's this wild story um, in Matthew where, where Jesus tells about a guy who was in debt. And he was in debt with a local ruler. And this is like life-ruining debt. Okay, like you're going to prison and you're going to work it off and it's going to essentially ruin your life, life ending, life ruining debt. He's about to experience separation from everything he's ever known. And in a moment of humility, Jesus tells a story. He goes and he begs to be forgiven before the ruler. And incredibly, the ruler chooses to do it. The guy who was in debt and was about to be condemned, instead of being condemned, he's actually forgiven. It's a great story and it's a great lesson if it ended there. But Jesus has a tendency sometimes to continue these stories. And he continues it. And a guy who had been forgiven of life-ruining debt runs into someone who owes him a good amount of money, but nothing compared to what he had just been forgiven of. And so the guy who had just been forgiven turns around and beats and chokes out and assaults the guy that owes him significantly less. And Jesus ends the story by saying, I'll paraphrase, that ain't it. Actually, he says the one who was forgiven and then didn't forgive was cast into prison in the darkness, but I digress. Here's the point. We who are in Christ have this gospel truth. We are not condemned. Ergo, we should be a people marked by the reality and not turn around and condemn. It means that because Christ doesn't condemn someone, I won't either. It means because Christ could forgive someone, so could I. Our entire culture right now seems shored up with shame and condemnation. Whatever side of whatever issue you find yourself on is often marked by who you choose to publicly condemn. 
What I'm saying is that if we are not condemned, then we should not be a condemning people. We should be a forgiving people, a receiving people. Let me bring it to our house. Maybe there's some of you who experience condemnation in the context of a church. Like you were nervous to come here tonight because you're thinking, what if that happens again? And I just want to say to you, as I close, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry that you experienced that. It's not what you should have experienced in the context of a church, particularly where we are people who have not been condemned and make a big deal about a Jesus who's forgiven us, that we should not be a people who turn around and condemn you. So I'm sorry. But I do want to invite you in to a community that does not write people off because God didn't write us off. Where this verse should shape the way that we move towards one another here and in our connection groups. I want you in a connection group so bad because I think it's one of the best places where you could be curious about Jesus or committed to Jesus anywhere in between and get to walk together towards knowing, loving, and following him without condemnation. It shapes the way that we move towards one another. I'm gonna have Jenna come up and we're gonna close here uh, real quick. So uh, my story, I, I wanna just finish the one I told at the beginning because I told you I was arrested and I didn't tell you what happened after that. Oops. Um, I was grounded because, well, I was arrested. And, and while I was in my room, I, um, I started to read my Bible and uh, I had no clue what was going on. So if you've ever read your Bible and had no clue what was going on, join the team, we've got jackets. Um, uh, and I was talking with my friend DJ about it. I was just asking him a question. He's in a bunch of my classes. He just moved to Tampa from North Carolina. And we were talking. He's like, hey, why don't you just come to church with me? And I was skeptical because I, like some of you, had some really, really bad experiences growing up in church. He said it was a youth group, but we ended up going to the main service. So I was like, oh, I already don't trust you. Um, <laughs> but a guy named Alan got up on the stage and he started talking about Jesus Christ. He talked about his birth, his death, his, his life, his death, his resurrection, how God made a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. I had a million questions, but I knew that two things were true. If this was true, if Jesus really was who he said he was, if he really was the means by which if I put my trust in Jesus, then I could have assurance of heaven. If I could have a relationship with God that would not just change my forever, but would change my now, then, then I, I knew that these two things were true. One, that it was everything that I'd actually been looking for. And two, that so many things in my life needed to change. It changed everything for the worse. And to tell you the truth, it, it did. It was not easy, oh, but it was so worth it to know him, to be known by him, to experience him. perfect salt company, but I'm growing in knowing what it means to live a life where I understand that I am not condemned. And I'm tempted to believe that tonight could be a moment for some of you that actually changes everything. Where you've walked around with a pile of condemnation on your shoulders, I need you to know that Jesus can take it away. Where you've thought that you've got to outwork your bad with your good, I need you to understand that can take away your bad forever and give you his good. Where you've thought that you need to earn or prove yourself, Jesus is saying peace and not performance. His invitation to you tonight is to come to him and he will take your condemnation from you. So just for a moment of focus and concentration, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or do anything like that. I just want you to 
it's the first time you've gotten to do that since you moved back to Madison. What I want you to do is just consider two questions. First, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand that the work of Jesus Christ is present before you. I'm honored and glad that you're here, but I want to present before you so clearly that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life that you and I could never live. And he died the death that we deserved. He took our sin, our condemnation that we deserved on himself into the grave and he rose again three days later so that we might be dead to our sin and alive to God in Christ so that we would not just go from bad to good but from dead to alive from condemned to saved and tonight if you look at Jesus and you say Jesus I need you to save me you'll do it you've been walking around with the weight of the world on your shoulders what you needed to hear that Jesus Christ says to you, if you come to me, I will take your condemnation from you. If you're not a Christian, I want you to wrestle with that here in just a moment. What if today was the day of salvation for you? What if Jesus wants you to come to him? It's his invitation to you. So would you come? Come, Lord Jesus. Two, if you're in here and you are a Christian, consider just for a moment what it means that you have hope of heaven that there is nothing left for you to prove that the fact that there's no condemnation does shape the way that we move towards others and I just want you to to ask this question and you can just ask it to God tonight and say God how would my life change if am, am I more fully believed that I am nothing but a thief how would my life change if I more fully believe that I am nothing but a thief would there be a strengthening of your assurance would it be a reminder that you don't need to prove or earn anything would it be a, a spark something in you to move towards someone and, and seek peace to to forgive to not be wrestle with those I want you to take a couple moments and just reflect
our sin deserved it. You've taken it away. Jesus, that is incredible. What you've done, the scope of what you've done is so amazing. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living. Thank you for dying for me, for us. Thank you for rising again. Just in light of who you are and what you have done, that we just worship and respond.